explain to you here in a moment how this morning went. You'll understand why I didn't even have that thing turned on. So anyway, my sermon, I prepare over the course of the week. I spend a lot of time, typically, uh, oftentimes I'm living hand-to-mouth, studying within a week for a given sermon. Sometimes I have the chance to study ahead. And uh, in the course of the Sermon on the Mount, knowing where I'm going, I do have an occasion to study ahead some. Um, And studying ahead for this Sunday and studying this week, my sermon was prepared about an hour and a half ago, and it's sitting in my office right now that way. Uh, It's not here. Um, About an hour and a half ago, over the course of the week, I just had this nagging feeling that we weren't ready for that sermon yet. And this stupid poll was on my mind all week. In fact, Friday morning, I texted the staff, has anybody seen this thing? Because I hadn't even really noticed. It was behind the door in our hallway, and um, thankfully, uh, we haven't gotten rid of it. There are two parts here. But this this came from a a sermon in 2008. Uh, It was a sermon on covenant. And um, I I think, I have to believe that the Lord sort of paused me, had me hit pause this morning for this sermon, or for the sermon that I was to preach, for this sermon. I'll just tell you right now, it's... um, I'm really nervous about it, and I'll tell you why, because it's about covenant, and I feel like as a bunch of Western, contemporary, um, um, modern people, we just don't use the language much about covenant, we don't think about covenant much, I'm not sure it's really that important to us in the grand scheme of things, but I'm trying to climb into what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus preached on the mount, and I'm realizing whether or not it's important to us now it had to have been to them then. They had to have been steeped in this thing then, even though we're not now. So I felt like, all right, in, in order for us to get something out of the message that's already prepared, that we'll consider last week as we land the plane in the, in the intro, introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, I felt like we needed to take a Sunday away from um, the Sermon on the Mount and sort of be equipped with some contemporary... Some, some fresh covenantal language so that we could then enjoy that the way we should. So I hope these next few minutes, bless you, I, I hope they're, it might be more teaching than preaching. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what it's going to be, and I, I'm, I'm really, I'm trusting that the Lord's, the Lord, it was the Lord's guidance in, in hitting pause on this morning's message and going with this instead. Uh, let me just kind of acquaint you with this poll. First of all, I, I'm uh, I think I'm going to spend a few minutes on this poll, and then I'm going to lay this thing down and have it out of the way for the rest of the morning. But I think it's sort of a nice visual for us to consider before we climb into where we're going, uh, to consider the God, the God that we don't have. Okay, or the gods, I could say, that we don't have. Because we're going to consider, uh, really for the majority of the morning, the God that we do have and how he interacts with us. So let me first just consider the very close God. Okay, we're talking man-made gods. The very close God is the God that's in creation. Okay, the, the Greeks and the Romans were a great picture of this because they had a God for everything. And in fact, they, even if they, in case they missed a God, they actually had gods and statues for unknown gods that they might have missed. This is a nice picture of what's called pantheism. Okay, where God is in everything. God is in all of creation. Or God's all over. He might be grazing in the back 40, but we're going to worship him, and we're going to call him God. These gods are immersed in creation, including man. The lines between God and creation are very blurry to non-existent. And God in this man-made version is very close to us. Okay, in some ways, he's of the same essence. 
ultimately man is a god or man can become a god since we're of the same essence. Okay, this totem pole is a nice visual of what I'm talking about here. It illustrates it really nicely. You've got uh, basically God at the top. I'm going to put him up top here for the moment. Hopefully he won't fall off. It's kind of, kind of crooked there, so we'll, we'll all pray that he doesn't fall. That's, that's, the, that's the God up top here. You've got a little crown on, kind of help you identify that. Man is at the center of the pole. This is man right here. We've got creatures below with a little frog face. Down below that in sort of ancient... Um, you know, pagan-type worship. They might even visualize that with demons down below, critters, in terms of this sort of visual of this continuum of creation. Okay, on this pole and in this concept, man is at the center of the pole, but we're a little more refined than the creatures. Okay, we're above the critters, but we're below God. We're all of the same essence. Now, totems, and let me just tell you right now, they might seem primitive, they might seem... Uh, unrelated to anything having to do with anything today, but there are modern-day versions of this view. Okay, the Mormons believe that we're all potential gods. Okay, that we could all eventually live faithful lives and inherit our own earth to populate. Okay, we're talking about what the man-made gods look like, and this first god is a very close god. Another way to consider how this view could even show up today is in the concept of evolution. Now, some Folks sort of integrate a creation-evolution story, but evolution ultimately places all existence on the pole. Okay, we started out as a little amoeba down there at the bottom, but we somehow worked our way up to being creatures, human beings specifically, and then eventually if we're refined enough, we can move our way up the pole. And if we're stupid, we move our way down the pole. This view may seem to deny God, but just like the God of pantheism, it ultimately says we're God or potentially God. Okay, we like this view of God. Humankind likes this view of God because it never declares us bankrupt or hopeless or helpless. We believe we have a spark of divinity in us. And if we have enough education, if we have enough legislation, that we can find actually utopia. We can experience it somehow. We've made a name for ourselves and we like our own glory. So the very close God... Our gods are really cool and appealing for natural man. We like that thought. The God of pantheism, though, the problem is he's too close to be taken seriously. He's too close to be taken seriously. Okay, secondly, that's the God that's very close. The second man-made God is the God that's very distant. This is a misunderstanding of transcendence. Okay, this is the God of deism. Okay, this God created everything, and then wound it up like a clock and spun it like a top and then left and went on vacay. Okay, just you want to visualize it. This God created it all and then took off and went to the beach. He's not going to interfere with the activities of this creation or intervene in any way. He's certainly not going to judge this creation. He's so transcendent and distant. He just doesn't care. This God is impersonal. He has no voice. So man is at the center of this story, ultimately. Since the God of deism is moot, or mute, I should say moot as well, man becomes the God and truth is whatever we want it to be. 
The totem picture is a nice picture of this. Is the God is on top there. He creates everything, and then he takes off and goes on vacation. The God of deism is too distant to take seriously, so the natural man is fond of him as well. Now, I want to take a minute to point out the God that we don't have before we consider the God that we do have. All right. The God that we do have, our invisible, distinct, involved God interacts with creation through something called covenant. Okay, what I want to develop over the rest of the morning is that most religions of the world have landed in either a very distant or very close God story. But our God is different and distinct. He's not on the pole and he has never been on the pole. Unlike the gods of pantheism, our God is not create, he's not a creature. He's not a created being. He's not just a higher form of us. And he's also not grazing in the back 40, thank the Lord. He made us not from himself, but he made us from nothing. Completely just speaking into absolute nothingness. His words created the gentle Zephyr. His words created the galaxies. The distant quasar, the suns, the moons, the atmosphere, the sand, the sea, the rocks. His very words created these things from nothing. We are not of shared essence with him. He is not on the pole. Thank the Lord. He's distinct and altogether different. But he's not like the God of deism in that he's not distant and he's not on vacation he is transcendent yes but he is not distant and uninvolved instead he is gentle and forgiving and involved instead our god is long-suffering and just and holy and involved our god is kind and benevolent and involved our God, our God, yes, is, is transcendent, but our God is true God. He is personal, though, and he is involved in us through this thing called covenant, this thing that we don't talk about. The thing that I have to admit for years of my Christian life is sort of like somebody's going to talk about a covenant. I'm going to think about lunch or take a nap. This is something that they would have carried to that mountainside, that hillside on the Sermon on the Mount 2,000 years ago. And we have got to do the work of sort of refreshing it so that we can stand on that hillside a week from now and have at least some context for what they would have enjoyed then. See, one of the things I want you to appreciate, you go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at four covenants. And we're just going to read some brief, I'm going to read some brief excerpts. Uh, from a few different passages, and we're going to look at some things that come out of these covenants that are, are unique, well, I should say, that are common to most of these covenants. One of the things I realized as I'm preparing this sermon, and I really have to do this every single week, ideally we all do this when we read God's Word in any way, is we try and figure out how to get at their table. Christy and I are listening to a book that we just started yesterday, um, Malcolm Gladwell, 
strangers, how to treat a stranger, or something like that. Something having to do with strangers in the title. Malcolm Gladwell is a great writer. He's written some excellent books, Tipping Point, things like that. He's written a book about how do we interact with strangers and telling some fascinating stories about how even people within our own context, how we disconnect and don't understand one another, and how we have to work to make sense of one another and understand one another. I'm thinking, man, if that's true, even with our own context, think about the challenges of going back to a context 2,000 years ago that we're not just talking about chronological disconnect, we're also talking about um, a cultural disconnect and a language disconnect. So we have to do the work every single week, really, of trying to climb back into that context because we're guests at a table that's unfamiliar to us. We have to do the work to make it familiar. So hopefully in these next few minutes, we will be equipped with what hopefully I expect, not only hopefully I expect, that those folks 2,000 years ago would have been considering. Our invisible, distinct, involved God interacts with creation through covenant. There are six primary covenants that I find we're going to, that I found we're going to consider four of them today, and we're going to anticipate the fifth one that we're going to spend next week enjoying together. The fifth one that we're really living out and enjoying and part of right now. Okay. The first one is the Adamic covenant, or the covenant with Adam. So it's in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Jump down to the sixth day in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Over the next few minutes, we're going to look at four different, uh, really just three, uh, actually four different covenants. And I'm going to draw out some things that are common to most of them. Okay, There's a covenant initiator. Okay, that's the first thing. There's a covenant mediator in all of these. There's some law that's given in each of these covenants. There's a cultural mandate given in most, if not all of them. There are blessings that are shared in each of these covenants. 
There are sacrifices involved in each of these covenants, and there are signs, or a sign, in almost all of these covenants. Okay, so you can look for these as we consider each of them. I'll help you sort of draw these out. But this is first the covenant with Adam. God initiates the covenant. This is true of all the covenants. God owns the initiating verbs. Thank the Lord. Because we can't find him. We grope for him and we can't find him. But God thankfully takes the initiative. This transcendent God takes the initiative and comes to us. We should enjoy that about every single covenant that we ever consider. This morning and next week. God is the initiator of the covenant. The verbs are his. God created. God said. God saw. God called things good. God's behind the verbs of Genesis chapter 1. He's behind the commands of Genesis chapter 2. The mediator in this case in the covenant with Adam is Adam. He's the guy that you'll see as the mediator. There's a law in this covenant. It's in verse 15 through 17 that I just read. That he took the man, put him in the garden to work it. There's a command embedded within that. Work the garden. Keep the garden. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day, of you eat of it, the, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But eat of all the other trees. There are few commands in there. We get stuck on the tree that we're not to eat from. But there's some beautiful commands in there. Take and eat from all the trees of the garden. Work and tend the garden. And oh, by the way, don't eat from that tree. So there's some law in this covenant with Adam. There's a mandate, a cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. There are blessings There's a garden full of trees that they can take and eat and enjoy. There's a sacrifice. The first animal that was ever killed was sacrificed here in this story to cover their sin. This animal that the skins were used to cover their shame and their nakedness. There's a sign, at least a sign that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 1 verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. There are other things that we could consider a sign in this story. But this is the first covenant where our true, distinct, transcendent God who's also involved is involved with creation. All right, let's look at our next covenant. Turn over to Genesis chapter 6. This is a covenant with Noah. Genesis chapter 6. I'll begin in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. Its height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Look over in chapter 8, 
beginning in verse 20. We pick up with the covenant conversation. In between the two of those is the, in between that passage there is the flood and the flood subsiding. So Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and wind, day and night, or summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they... In verse 1, he gives a cultural mandate. It sounds a lot like the first one. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens. He promises blessings. He, he gives them dominion over creation and creatures. They'll be your food. And also there's a sacrifice in this story. And unfortunately, the sacrifice in this story is the whole of creation. Man, it's a terrible sacrifice. The first wicked humanity in creation. And then later, one of the preserved remnant is sacrificed as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The sign that we enjoy every now and again, we see a double version of it, is the relaxed bow that's set in the sky as a remembrance of God's promise to never flood the earth ever again. This is the second covenant that our true and distinct and transcendent God was very involved with creation. He's distinct, yet very much involved through covenant. All right, here's the third one, Genesis chapter 15. We're going to consider a covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, 
And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring shall, shall be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your father, your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pit and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. One more passage right across the page in chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting covenant possession and I will be their God and God said to Abraham as for you you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you every male among you shall be circumcised you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and I and and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you God, again, is initiating covenant. God speaks. God calls. He speaks into the darkness of a vision. The covenant here is, covenanter, covenanter again, is driving. He's got all the verbs. He speaks into the darkness, first of all, of a man who and his family are worshiping the moon in Ur of Chaldeans. This guy didn't know God any more than he knew the moon. And God spoke into his context, taking the initiative as the driving force behind the covenant, He speaks into the dark context of an old man and a barren woman with no hope of childbearing. He speaks into that darkness. They have no land, nothing to show for themselves. And he says, not only am I going to give you children, I'm going to give you a whole land. I'm going to give you a promised land. Of course, the mediator in this covenant is Abram, later renamed Abraham. Oftentimes there's a renaming that goes along with a covenant. He commands him. He gives him some commandments there. Be blameless. Keep my covenant, he says in chapter 17, verse 9. Go to a land that I will show you. There's a a version of a law embedded within this covenant. He promises blessings. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars and the sand and the dust. 
and we're a product of those promises that were made to Abraham in this very room, right at this very moment. There's a sacrifice involved here. The three-year-olds of all kinds of critters are getting sacrificed in chapter 15, verses 9 and 10. There's a sign in chapter 17. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. This is the third covenant where our distinct God, who is transcendent, is very much involved in creation, creating now his own people with an old man and an old barren woman. Now, for the fourth covenant. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let me give you some, some encouragement as you've listened this far. I know this is a unique Sunday. It's unique for me as well. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the fourth covenant. And what I'm hoping to do, um, again, is trying to equip you for next week to hear freshly and hear newly so that we can join those folks on that mountainside who were there 2,000 years ago and that we can really be excited about what he brings to bear at the end of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. Here's sort of the, if you're kind of trying to figure out how to pace yourself, this is the next to last covenant we're looking at, and this is the last one we're going to look at in detail. The last one we're going to look at this morning, we're just going to hint at. I'm going to leave it just prepared for you, hopefully creating sort of an itch for next week so that you'll be anxious to hear about this last covenant that we'll consider next week. But this one, this Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read the majority, actually not the majority, through verse 22. So just listen really closely and listen for those common thing things. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Horeb is the same thing as Sinai. Another name for Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but he made it with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at that mountain, out of the midst of the fire, which I stood while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not, or you shall make for yourself a You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates, that your male servant, your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Some of the things that come out of this, these common ingredients. God initiates the covenant with an ordinary people. Man, just a bunch of slaves in Egypt among all the peoples of the earth. Moses makes the point to point that out to this people in Deuteronomy. Out of all peoples on the face of the earth, he initiated covenant with you. The covenanter, again, is driving. They're his verbs. He speaks here into the darkness of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And here, after, again, after 40 years in the wilderness, he mediates this covenant through the man named Moses. There again are some laws and some commands in the obvious passage that we read today, the Ten Commandments. He promises curses for the disobedient and blessings for the obedient. There's a sacrifice involved in this covenant, and it's called the whole book of Leviticus. Sacrifice after sacrifice. There are signs all over the story of the Exodus and all over the story of the Mosaic Covenant. But the one that really stands out most prominent to me is the sign that God made to Moses. God told Moses when he spoke to him from the burning bush at Horeb, he said, a sign that I sent you is that when you've brought this people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this very mountain. Sinai, the very mountain that they're standing at when they heard the passage that I read today, those very words. This is the fourth covenant that we've considered this morning where our distinct God, our transcendent God, heard the cries of his people. He saw their distress, and in his time and for his glory, he delivered them from the darkness of Egypt. Now, here's the last one that we're just going to hint at. It's in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. I uh, have done a couple of weddings recently, one for my son and his new bride, and one for these two sitting over here, Bryce and Rainey. And something that I, I had the chance to do with these two most recent weddings, Solomon and the Shulamite woman just really being good friends. I don't know how he did that with 699 other wives, but somehow Solomon achieved that. I mean, we just got to enjoy that he had a special relationship with a Shulamite gal. Another word for love in the, in the Song of Solomon is the word dode. This is the word that deals with sort of the, 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 the more intimate aspects of love. Here's a passage from Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. It's a really sweet, intimate, sort of connecting kind of love that uh, is actually been described as the mingling of souls. That's really cool, isn't it? You just imagine a husband and wife and being so intertwined, so connected, that they experience something described as the mingling of souls in that Hebrew word, dode. 
But the one that, that really stuck out to me is this third use. This is the, the, the word ahava. The Hebrew word ahava is covenantal love. One of the things I realize is I've shared these covenants with you this morning. These four covenants as we've read them, we sort of collected the data. It feels a little dry and a little sterile, doesn't it? I mean, I can totally see your faces. Y'all, you need to know I'm, I'm not blind when I'm standing up here. It's like the guy that's driving his car and he doesn't realize people can see him when he's digging his nose, you know? Y'all think I can't see you. I can totally see on a given Sunday morning when something's really dry because I see it in your faces. I know exactly. That's the anxiety that I had about this morning is, ugh, we got to talk about something dry. Man, I love the thought of talking about something really exciting that you can relate to. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been to a wedding where at the moment of the vows, you're just like, oh, man, I'm so tired. This is so lame. Is this, when's this going to be over? I hate this part. It's so impersonal and so sterile. Have you ever considered the moment of the vows like that? What I want you to appreciate is the moment in a wedding where you hear the vows shared, what you're hearing right there is covenantal love. Ah, hava. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6 says this. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. That's covenantal love. That's the kind of love that God showed over and over and over again in these covenants that we can read and consider so dryly and so sterile. This relentless love. I'm going to love you despite the fact that you're going to break covenant every single time. I'm going to love you despite the fact that you don't deserve this. It's the kind of love that you hear in a wedding when a man turns to his wife and says, I'm going to love you in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer. I've got to know you well enough to know that I'm going to love you despite the fact that you have these crazy quirks that I can't make sense of. I'm going to love you, honey, the wife's thinking to her husband, even though you eat with your mouth open sometimes. That drives me crazy. I'm going to decide to love you, even though there will be times where you don't deserve it. That's covenantal love. That's the kind of love that's bathed all of these covenants that we've read about today. But none more so than the one I'm about to read about. In Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning, just I'm going to read three or four verses. And then we're going to have our supper. And then we're together going to pine for next week. We're going to pine for next week as we consider together what this has to do with Christ standing on that mount 2,000 years ago. With our identity as salt and light in the world. Listen to this covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the one we just read about. I'm going to make a new covenant 
I'm not going to make one that's like that covenant, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant, this covenant, that I will make with the house of Israel, Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful covenantal promise. There's been some time in the past, or I can't recall exactly when it was, but I had a sermon dedicated to that. Scott has preached on that passage before. I believe Brad has. I think Kai spoke to that passage at one point. That new covenant is the sweetest news this world has ever heard. And what we're going to consider next week as salt and light is we're walking right in the middle of it. We're part of it. We're the fruit of it. And in some ways, what Jesus says when he identifies us as salt and light, we're the living visual aids of it. We're the heralds of it. It's the greatest news this world has ever heard. And just in case you're wondering if it's bathed in love or not, at the beginning of this chapter I just read in Jeremiah chapter 3, or excuse me, 31, verse 3, he says, I have loved you, Ahava, with an everlasting Ahava love. A love that's as strong as death. When we take the supper every single week, we consider that we are walking in a love that's, in fact, as strong as death. And death on a cross. Demonstrated by our husband, our divine husband, this husband that has loved us as the church, died for us, walking out this ahava kind of love. Man, let's pray. Lord, I pray that these few minutes that we've spent this morning that they will in some way equip us with some sort of delight over something that can so easily be just academic and sterile. Lord, I pray that we can somehow connect to this beauty of these love-bathed covenants, that we can together enjoy a God that is relentlessly making a way for us. Lord, that we together can anticipate the unbelievable news of the new covenant and what that actually means for us. Lord, I pray that you will prepare my heart this coming week to preach this awesome, crazy good news next week. I pray that you will prepare the hearts of those in this room. I pray that you'll prepare the hearts of those who will join us next week to be ready and primed to delight in being salt and light and what that actually means, not only for us, but also for the world. We are thankful that you are transcendent and you are distinct, but you are not distant. We are thankful that you are so present with us and so relentlessly faithful to see these covenants through with us. Lord, we love you and we're thankful. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.